Welcome to Artscoping. I'm your host, Max Anderson. Remember, I've walked all over the place around Amsterdam and made drawings of landscapes and he observed even the most humble things on the most nameless people. He read the Bible. He read the Metamorphosis by Ovid. He read Livy's history of ancient Rome and thought about what the core stories were and what they were made to teach people. They're there into the pictures. He put them there. And you can see them if you look with a kind of open mind and imagination. That's Dr. John Walsh, an art historian and curator who served as director of the J. Paul Getty Museum from 1983 to 2000. There, he supervised the design and completion of the Getty's Richard Meyer Design Museum at the Getty Center and the planning of the Getty Villa, as well as making its collections far broader, deeper, and more important. He graduated from Yale, received a PhD from Columbia University, began his career at the Frick Collection, was curator of European paintings at the Metropolitan Museum of Art from 1970 to 75, taught at Columbia, and was the Mrs. R. W. Baker Curator of Paintings at the Museum of Fine Arts Boston from 1977 until he assumed the directorship at the Getty. We join him as he's completing a series of recorded lectures about Rembrandt for the Hammer Museum in Los Angeles. Hi, John. Welcome. Hey, Max. Thank you. I'm so glad to have you. And I was just reflecting about when I first laid eyes on you in person. I was a mere young curator at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in Greek and Roman, and you were at the end of a long corridor and you asked who I was. <laughs> it was unexpected <laughs> in that cloistered environment. <laughs> yeah. I had already been there since, uh, gosh, 1967 or 68 when I came up from the Frick Collection. And um, I was a somewhat beleaguered uh, curator of European paintings at the time. Our director was Tom Hoving, yeah. uh, who had become slightly crazed at the time. Mm -hmm. So I probably looked preoccupied, but very glad to see you. Well, and, and, you know, and you and I have not been out of touch all that much for a long, long time now, your whole career. I do keep busy, as you do. And speaking of keeping busy, I'm curious, you're in California. What was your last visit during this pandemic to an art museum? Guy, well, it was back at the end of February, beginning of March. I had, um, it was actually a doubleheader. I was down at the Whitney to see the show of Mexican muralists. And then up at the Met, just, just nosing around the place for cubists. The Met has sort of gotten beat up a little bit for its activities in 19th and 20th century, particularly modern art, but it's got a fabulous collection of cubism. And so I got lost in Leonard Lauder's collection and other things that have come to the Met since mm -hmm. I was there working. Yeah, much has changed there. And of course, the Met Breuer came and went. And speaking yeah. of the Met, I was there, I went to the mothership last weekend during the pandemic, and it felt provisional. And I'm curious mm -hmm. if if you have a guess about when big exhibitions are going to resume in this field. When and whether. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's so interesting. You you were there. So what you must have seen was the Sahel show, this amazing exhibition of African art at the fringes of the Sahara Desert. And going in, you you looked up and you saw the pieces by Wangechi Mutu yes. on the facade of the building. Mm -hmm. huh? They look so alien, it's astounding, and yet they're the right scale, right? Yeah. You remember the facade of the Met, they ran out of money when the facade right. was completed, so they had to leave the big Four Seasons sculptures as unfinished blocks. 
And that was yeah. basically the Landmarks Commission said, you can't touch those when someone had the brain. Saying, well, we have the drawings of those seasons. And said, nope. Well, no. yeah, they would have been classical statues in them had they been completed. Now there is this astonishingly alien creatures made by a woman who was not born in America. I mean, right. this is amazing. Right. Or we're the alien creatures in a land of Native Americans. Yeah. It's hard to say where it all begins. <laughs> so much has changed in the attitudes of museums, both, as you say, programmatically and acquisitions and displays. But then there's another issue around the pandemic, which is the commercial paradigm, yeah. which the Met was yeah. relatively free of in some respects until recently. But that paradigm, yeah. which was embraced by so many museums beginning in the 1980s, is now in jeopardy given the decline in paid admissions and membership and contributions. Oh, sure. Do you think this moment of reckoning might reduce grandstanding about attendance as the primary statistic that defines the importance of museums? I don't know if it's the moment of reckoning or it's the financial emergency, both of the things you, you mentioned. I mean, the imp financial imperatives are even greater, I would think. So, for, so and attendance is, as you say, the traditional booster of esteem and uh, fundraising ability, uh, and not to mention sales of merch and all that stuff. In the so those are the success meters. I wonder if big names and big shows aren't going to be even more in demand, or maybe not big as big, maybe the shows will be smaller, mm -hmm. but the names will get even more familiar and frequently appearing. I don't know. The grandstanding is maybe here to stay. But um, celebrated names, John, it sounds a little bit like dumbing down, a little less adventurous, a little less risk-taking, a little less scholarly. Is that what you're pointing towards? And it's just what we've been talking about for, I don't know, 25, 30 years in the profession or longer even. You know, I started at the time of Hoving and, you know, the director of the Boston Museum, Perry Rathbone, and then Carter Brown, the search for familiar enough names uh, to make buzz, or very familiar names for a surefire box office. I think the shows may have to be smaller just for to save money, but maybe even more heavily promoted through social media and other newer ways of reaching a public. Yeah, of course, in the 19th century, there was Frederick Edwin Church would have a single major canvas with <laughs> velvet curtains, and that was a show. And then in the Second yeah. World War, the National Gallery in London would show one work of art at a time during the Blitz as a way of saying, we're here and we're not giving up. Max, right around the time we met, or maybe a little earlier, I had done an exhibition uh, in one room at the Met called Dutch Couples. This is an unpromising sounding <laughs> lecture a topic for a show, but it consisted of portraits by Rembrandt and Franz Hals and other Dutch artists that had been separated. These are man and wife portraits um, that had been separated somehow. And we were able to pull them together in one room. And it's a show that had a certain human connection um, that's eternal, you know, and, and great artists as well. And that show was a big hit. I just want to turn to another arena, which has to do with images of people. And it takes us back to when you were president of the Association of Art Museum Directors in 1990. You were a witness for the defense during a jury trial in Hamilton County Municipal Court of the Cincinnati <laughs> Contemporary Heart Center and its then director, Dennis Barry. He had been, and the museum had been, prosecuted 
on obscenity charges for it's all coming back to me yes. now it's coming back oh well, Jesus! it was the robert maplethorpe exhibition there were criminal charges being launched you testified as an expert witness on behalf of the museum and the director and i'm interested given that you started as a curator and you became a director how did that experience shape your views of the public responsibilities of directors beyond just managing institutions yeah um, well, it was a real jolt. I mean, you say, <laughs> you say you're talking about pictures of people. You were saying about parts of people. Um, yeah, this was a show by Maplethorpe, who, among other many interesting images, had a portfolio of uh, sex acts performed by gay men and uh, with some uh, dramatic close-ups. Anyway, that was only part of the show, but it was it made a, a brief furor in Cincinnati because uh, the prosecutor was something of a celebrity there. And a right winger got hold of it and took the director in on prosecuted him for pandering obscenity. Right. And this was so obviously these were some, these were works of art. They may, you may not have liked them. You might have loathed the imagery, but they were works of art of a kind that had been shown many times before. In any case, we just couldn't believe it. But there it was. The guy was indicted and going to be tried and was tried. It was so remarkable. And it turned out to be a test for a lot of us as museum directors, because we had to realize that a lot of people on our boards, people, our bosses, in other words, were far more conservative about a great many things than we realized. Mm -hmm. Not, they weren't just Republicans. They were social conservatives of an extreme kind. And we had to realize, ah, this could happen to us. This could happen to all of us, because we hadn't really, that we directors of museums, had not really been working hard enough with our boards to prepare them for these kinds of clashes between social norms or personal sensibilities and what artists do. We sort of took artistic freedom for granted, as though everybody believed in it. You know, and it took a redneck prosecutor and a jury that almost, almost convicted the guy to um, help us see the work that we had to do. But John, here we are 30 years later and Black Lives Matter has upended the priorities of museums in hiring and promoting and programming and so much else. And directors are being called on the carpet in new ways. And while neither of us runs a museum, what does this chapter seem to you in reflection of that Maplethorpe experience and of the public responsibility of directors? What's changed? What's similar? Yeah, it's certainly not new, um, but it's certainly more acute, closer to us, painful. Mm -hmm. It comes up from members of our own staffs, museum staffs. I speak as the, I speak as though I were still doing it. Well, you're emeritus, uh, so you're still attached. Okay. <laughs> Part of the pang for all of us, I think, is that we've been talking about this lack of equity in our profession. That means unfairness to women uh, and minority members of staff and the representation of boards, you know, and the holding of top jobs. All of these tilted so strongly to white males. We've been talking about this since the 1970s. Uh, and you might remember a meeting we all had, all of us museum directors, uh, organized by Marsha Tucker to look at these issues. The founder of the new museum and then a curator, or just then about to not be curator of the Whitney Museum. Anyway, Marsha Tucker's session on racial justice and colonialist attitudes in collecting and display and all in all an attempt to help the museum director profession catch up with what had already been a hot issues in academic life and also 
part of this was aimed at admitting to each other that we help we need to help prepare minority students for arts jobs. And that's a matter of strengthening art education in grade schools and high schools and holding up role models when we can see them, particularly successful artists who are not white males. We saw the crisis, I think, some of us at least felt it particularly keenly. But now, how much time has gone by? This is almost 50 years Mm -hmm. that we've stood in this issue without making a huge amount of progress, I have to say. How much of that has to do with reward systems, John? That is to say, boards hire directors. And you were saying before that some boards are quicker to the march of history than others. In 92, you were the leading candidate to succeed Carter Brown as director of the National Gallery, but you decided to withdraw from the search and stay at the Getty. Directors are, after all, chosen by boards, kept on by boards. How much does that influence the way that people are hired and the kinds of attributes and credentials that you think are needed today in this roiling world that we're in? You mentioned my my job in, in 92, my, my decision, and nothing to do with the National Gallery, really. My job was too good. And I have to say that I envied nobody in the profession. I had had a job that gave me eight years of building up a staff and where I could buy great works of art again and again, build whole new collections. I didn't have any financial worries. We had a $6 billion endowment. So I didn't have to raise money. And I had a supportive board. So, you know, why would I take another job? I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about the question you asked, though, about how directors are chosen. When I joined the real world after I left the Getty and did some consulting and met with boards and tried to find out what they really wanted and needed in a new director, because these were search situations. And they all wanted the same thing. They wanted a combination of expertise in art and experience with it, even scholarship, and they wanted skilled management, both. Mm-hmm. And you know, they debated one thing and another, the balance of the two, but all of them, at least nominally, uh, would say that art was the more important, that it was the key to high standards, uh, the key to artistic leadership. I believe that too, that whatever comes and goes on the management side, management can be learned, it seems to me, by a 35 or 40 year old curator who's eligible to become a museum director. Management can be learned, but I don't think a manager at that age can learn art history and to be a judge of the material and its practitioners. And dividing the job between art and administration, having two heads of an institution, I don't think has worked very well. John, you mentioned knowing art history. In fact, most of the leading encyclopedic museums in America are today run by people who are contemporary art curators rather than art historians. And it has absolutely made itself felt in respect to programming, exhibitions, acquisitions, and the like. So has that changed, in your view, the credentialing? In other words, boards are now saying, I really want somebody who's a contemporary curator because they're going to know all the major collectors in town. Yeah. Well, I haven't heard that said in so many words, but um, I've heard words to that effect. I've seen a sort of prejudice in favor of people who do the galleries who might have written about some contemporary artists and so forth. Solid, basic experience. Well, for example, like your, your expertise or mine, uh, there are not a lot of boards out shopping for specialists. <laughs> and 
Roman portraiture or, um, you know, uh, Dutch uh, landscape painting. I think you're right that as a practical matter, if it's a matter of cultivation of potential donors and impressing them, getting up cozy with the collector elements in town, um, contemporary curators have the edge for sure. You mentioned the ancient world and the tide certainly has turned with regard to museums and collections of material from the ancient world. And as you were saying about Marsha Tucker from former colonies. <laughs> And there are calls today for restitution of material acquired even a century ago or more from the French prime minister, the Victorian Albert recently with Ethiopia. What are your reflections about the responsibility of museums, not with regard to collecting, but with regard to retrospective provenance research of standing collections? Well, of course, it's a good idea to observe sensible precautions and to try to retain or earn the respect of foreign museums. The word restitution, though, is a bit loaded, isn't it? I mean, it, it assumes that art that's made in a country belongs there. If it's stolen or otherwise removed illegally, obviously, everybody would agree that it should go back. The hard part is how you know, I mean, how you find out. You usually find out retrospectively when somebody says, oh, yeah, well, 30 years ago, that was in a trench in Sicily. Getty, as you, you know, Max, very well, had quite a stringent policy where antiquities were concerned. We sent pictures of potential acquisitions and descriptions to countries that it might have come from, Greece, usually Greece, Italy, and Turkey. We sent them pictures and asked them if they had information about it before we went ahead to buy. And we waited, and if we got no information, we would buy, but we would buy with a pledge that if information came to light that would otherwise give the country a claim on the work that would be recognized in court, we would return it. We would make restitution in that case. And we kept the pledges again and again. And my, my successors at the Getty have had to return a great deal of material uh, on this basis. The work that emerges in the market would not have been known to a foreign state party because yeah. it was dug up in the, yeah. in the stillness of the night. So it's a challenging issue to look back at collections that are standing and say, how do you deal with them today? You came to everybody's attention in the field, I think, as a director of a museum of mainly of Greek and Roman antiquities at Emory University, the Carlos Museum, because uh, rather than go out and buy a lot of material, rather than run the risks of the market, you borrowed in the most creative way all kinds of material from mainly from Italy, I think, and put them on exhibitions in exhibitions that were beautifully conceived, for example, the one that I can never forget is the exhibition of Scent. Do you remember? Scent, <laughs> S-C-E-N-T. Yeah, this is the first exhibition ever uh, of, of material that was once prized and buried with people, um, that is, perfumes. And you found a way to put perfume on exhibition. And something that nobody had ever thought of. We were reading Pliny the Elder, who had recipes for yeah, fragrances, including yeah. telinum that Julius Caesar wore and rhodinum, which was an aphrodisiac that, that uh, yeah. the Apache. And they liked. kept them in beautiful vessels, too. And, and so you got to see uh, the, the senses being gratified in several different ways. Yeah, that was Plus, you gave, out, you gave out samples, didn't you? Or you gave them out, <laughs> yeah. you sold them. But that was brilliant. My first experience with a confused administration was when I said we were renting an <laughs> olive grove in Tuscany and harvesting the yeah. olives before they were ripe as binders for the perfume. As you look at museum activities today, we're hearing a lot about deaccessioning. And I'm curious mm. how you feel the field is managing 
this fraught topic. I did an interview with Jim Tuff recently asking him about the origins of our professional practices among museums and deaccessionists. And he brought us up a bit short to say, look, we had this FASB agreement, selling art for a purpose other than buying art invites the possibility that these works will end up on the balance sheet of collections rather than being independent and separate. So I'm wondering where you sit in looking at what's happening with deaccessioning. You know, can I say first, I hate that word. Yes. That word is a, is a, is a Pentagonism. It was invented by Hoving uh, to cover up, to make it sound high-minded um, and technical. You know, deaccessioning is means selling or trading works of art in the collection. And then, then your registrar can deaccession it. Um, but anyway, it, it covers a, a slightly surreptitious practice, um, and sometimes downright surreptitious practice. Now it's been blown out in the open by some conspicuous, foolish sales of works of art. In any case, I, I continue to think it's an unhealthy practice if the proceeds are not used to improve the collection, that is to say, spent on art to either broaden a collection or strengthen it. It's been done both ways, broadening. Uh, you remember the case of the Albright Knox Museum, which had a large, great and important collection of modern art and some Chinese and Greek and Roman art that was, in some of the cases, very, very good, but small and not any longer central to what the Albright Knox saw as central to its mission. And so they sold them. And nowadays, um, now especially with there's a financial emergency in many museums and um, the pressure to make the museum fairer to its employees, more diverse, to have collections that better reflect the origins of members of the public and so forth and so forth. There are many new virtuous sounding intentions to sell works of art for. It is a slippery slope waiting for a freeze. Uh, so it gets slipperier, in other words, um, and gets trustees off the hook. Yeah, I mean, that, in the old a, days, you had to they, raise they, money to buy art or yeah. money. And when did that you stop? Have to, and it alienates collectors, too, who've given material that they thought was going to be seen by the public and instead seen by Christie's and mm -hmm. sold off to a collector in Switzerland. Jim and I, in our interview, we went through the FASB agreement and why all of those issues were put into a sort of aspect to say, we'll keep it off the balance sheet and then you guys won't sell it for a purpose other than buying art. And that's all a bit up in the air right now. But it's one of many mm -hmm. issues that you and I are not facing today. <laughs> uh, yeah. We're not in the driver's seat. But I'm curious about what advice you might be willing to give to a new director who doesn't know any of this history, who reads mm -hmm. about it as ancient history, and who is today facing a pandemic. They're facing meager attendance. They're facing staff with morale problems and huge fiscal woes. What, what do you say? I know you talk mm -hmm. to young curators and emerging directors. What's the advice you're giving to people? Well, uh, you know, talk to your elders, but <laughs> seriously, um, what I come down to a lot of times is don't be afraid to define what you want your museum to be. Be clear about it. Talk about it with board members. Get it down to two or three points, bullet points, if you like to call and repeat those to the staff relentlessly, you know, repeat them to the board. You keep listening, of course, but mainly you need to be clear and emphatic. And the other thing is get out of your office. Get out of your office a lot. <laughs> See 
the collections, study them, be seen by the staff, spend time with the staff talking to them, do it in the galleries if you can, you know, listen and listen. And then don't hold back. Don't think it's corny to take people by surprise with pop-up parties on whatever occasion you can think of. You know, be a real person to the staff. Mm-hmm. Be a firm person, a parental kind of person, because they really, really need you. You mentioned getting in the galleries. I want to get you in the galleries because you spent your career researching, publishing, teaching about Dutch pictures, which afford us all a glimpse into a world that privileged the joys of landscape, of interiors, and of people's lives. You're at the moment preparing lectures for The Hammer, and I'd be grateful if you tell us a bit about what viewers of those lectures will come away with. That's a good question. I, I mean, I'm in the, I've already started giving them, and I, I want, and it's now very clear to me, what I want them to do is think about the work and look at it slowly and thoughtfully. And why, and for example, Remember, I walked all over the place around Amsterdam and made drawings of landscapes and observed even the most humble things on the most nameless people. I want people to think about what it is to observe. He read the Bible. He was a deep reader of biblical stories. He read the Metamorphosis by Ovid. He read Livy's history of ancient Rome and thought about what the core stories were and what they were made to teach people in the modern world, that is, the 17th century modern world, qualities of compassion and courage and um, devotion to spouse and generosity. They're there into the pictures. He put them there. And you can see them if you look with a kind of open mind and imagination. So I'm teaching people, I hope, to slow down, look hard, and reflect On the moral compass that you're speaking of and the intellectual curiosity and the visual curiosity of Rembrandt, is there an artist alive today who you look at and say, you know, that looks like somebody who kind of thinks the same way and looks at the world the same way? Is there anyone who's hit you in that sense? Yeah, maybe Kiefer, Max, maybe maybe Anselm Kiefer. He's German, he's uh, in his 70s, Um, but a very great and prolific and important painter, but he is he's a reader and a thinker uh, and a believer that you can build those qualities of literary consciousness, of moral engagement and so forth. You can read those out of the pictures he makes. It, it's work, but you, you can do it. How did you carve out time as a director to continue to live with research, study Dutch pictures? Boy, <laughs> I didn't have to raise money. <laughs> yeah. and saves a lot of time right there. Uh, no, I did kept up with the literature, uh, you know, and I was very lucky in that my president and my board of trustees gave me a sort of sabbatical, a six-month period where I could go back, travel, go to museums, write a book. I went to Princeton for a semester to, to just hang out in the Institute of Advanced Study to get a manuscript done. So I didn't actually get granted that by some tooth fairy. I, I had to ask for it. And I think directors need to ask for things that they they need to make themselves you know, fuller, more productive people, even though it won't be popular when you first raise the subject. You gave me that at the Getty. You gave me an apartment and an opportunity yeah. to write an essay about metrics of success in art yeah. museums. And like you're saying, it was an amazing opportunity to just decouple from the chaos of management and be 
in your head. <laughs> so it's I'm always true, thinking. isn't it? Yeah. Time is still the greatest gift. Yes, and we seem to be running a little out of time today, John, because we've covered <laughs> the waterfront. But I am, I am very grateful to you for giving us some reflections on what the field is doing and what it's done and maybe a bit about where it's going. It's always a joy to talk to you, Max. Such a pleasure to have spoken today with Dr. John Walsh, Director Emeritus of the Getty Museum and a renowned scholar of Dutch art. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping.